Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's guest is Christopher Cahill, a speculative artist based in New York, Hong Kong, and Colorado. He's known for materially exquisite objects that draw equally from learned material about and lived encounters with power and otherness in an unevenly decolonialized, increasingly networked world. He is exhibited at Storm King Art Center, the Queen's Museum, Cranbrook Art Museum, Parasite, Mass Mocha, and Socrates Sculpture Park, among other venues. Christopher is here to talk briefly about his creative process for his exhibit at Next Act Contemporary Art from Hong Kong. Next Act highlights a critical dimension of these creative practices by pivoting away from the conventional perception that art is a sensual form of truth. Instead, the final works make the creation of art a journey of critical thinking. The exhibition also opens up new areas of possible arts and cultural programs that are immersive and educational. Whatever the future holds, we remain passionate about moving forward to provide an inclusive platform that encourages collaboration across different disciplines. Christopher joined us at Asia Society Hong Kong to conduct the following interview. thank you for being here and for being part of this show. It's really exciting to be able to work with you on this project and um, to be able to exhibit your work here at Asia Society. It's a real honor. Um, and I've really enjoyed this entire process of getting to know more about you and your work. Um, why don't we start with an introduction of your piece, which is titled, Always Leave the Table a Little Hungry. Um, please share. That's such an interesting, intriguing title. I have to know more. <laughs> Well, that uh, phrase, always leave the table a little hungry, was one of the two things that John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s doctor recommended that uh, he follow towards the end of his life, the other being take five periods of rest daily. And both of these recommendations really struck me when I started doing the research for this project because they seem so counter to the way we live now. The phrase itself, does it come from your research on the Rockefeller family? Um, because I think when we first started discussing this exhibition, um, the description of the show was actually quite open-ended, um, where I think we, we basically said that this is an exhibition that will coincide with the 30th anniversary of Asia Society, looking back looking at the present and looking forward at the future. Um, how did you come to think about the Rockefellers? Does this, um, had you done research on the Rockefeller family in the past for other works? I hadn't really done research on the Rockefeller family, mm -hmm. but the premise of the exhibition as you guys presented it to me intrigued, the idea of a next act or a second act. And knowing the history between Asia Society and the Rockefellers, that was one entrance into beginning uh, to research for this project. Um, I found it really fitting and interesting that John D. Rockefeller Sr., even though he is mostly known for founding Standard Oil, actually spent half of his life not working at Standard Oil and being involved in Rockefeller philanthropies. So to me, that idea of dividing one's life to a beginning and then a second act really fit with the theme of this exhibition. Um, the work that you're presenting here, it's, um, 
a sculptural object that's based outside that has a lot of a dialogue with Asia society's architectural structure and history. Um, can you share a little bit about your creative process of how you came to that uh, conclusion or that proposal? Um, and how, what was your thought process with um, your research on J.D. Rockefeller III? So I found it very interesting that I have been to Hong Kong my entire life and been to Admiralty and Pacific Place many times, but somehow didn't make it all the way up the hill to Asia society. And I was happy to find out that the architecture here, um, in a way it almost succeeds too well in integrating itself with the landscape and it becomes very discreet. I felt like the fitting thing, especially having studied architecture as an undergrad, was to propose a project that also fit with the design of Asia society. And perhaps the most striking aspect of the site for me was the bridge that led from the Jockey Club Hall to the galleries and the ravine that you got to look over as you were walking on this sharp-edged bridge. So. I think a two-part, um, a two. I thought almost immediately of a two-part artwork. Uh, I had no idea what exactly it would be, but I thought it would be really fantastic to visually connect those two points. Um, well, it, it's really exciting because, naturally, on your own, I think you helped us realize a part of the exhibition that we wanted to. Um, we wanted to activate the center. We wanted to bring the art outside of the galleries and celebrate this amazing oasis and the architecture that many people do know um, Asia Society for. And you're not alone for being, <laughs> for, for coming to Pacific Place often and not hiking up the hill. So we thank you for coming up to the hill, up the hill. Um, but, um, you know, for, for the audience um, who may not have seen your work yet, um, can you, let's just describe the experience for them because it's actually quite unique how um, your work dovetails so well with the architecture here from the moment that people step onto the Asia Society campus. Uh, to describe your work um, for listeners, uh, we, can you, let, let's, let's just describe it for the viewers, what they will experience when they um, enter Asia Society and how they are meant to experience your artwork. The second component is a model of a theater that's on the bridge. And the theater is specifically Ford's theater, most famous for being the theater where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And this small theater is multicolored and has a small kind of scene of a Thanksgiving dinner inside. And through the theater, you see something on the window of the Jockey Club Hall. And um, that is, a, uh, is an outsized version of an American gymnast from 1984 uh, named Mary Lou Retton. The sculpture on a bridge is a miniaturized version of the Ford Theater, but it's actually quite colorful. Um, and can you talk about what are the patterns that you use to decorate or to illustrate this scene that is 
that is happening in the theater and also to talk about this interesting platform that that it is on um, that's looking towards the jockey club jockey club hall windows there are five primary patterns and they are based off of various crowds um, one is based off of fourth of july parades uh, in the U.S. The second is based off of the crowds at the 1984 L.A. Olympics. The third is based off of British soldiers marching at Colonial Williamsburg, which was a Rockefeller Foundation initiative to preserve a historic site in Virginia. And they are reenactments of British soldiers. The fourth is from George Balanchine's ballet to John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever. So the illustrations on your model use this um, analog technology called the stereogram that provides an optical illusion of using imagery to represent something else. You've talked about uh, these very iconic um, visual graphics that relate to the 1984 Olympics um, in Los Angeles, Fourth uh, of July parades that take place every year in America. All of these things seem to have a lot of symbolism uh, that relates to um, celebrations, um, yet there's something hidden behind. Can you explain your research um, process and your, your ideas behind using this very simple technology to convey a lot of this historical um, meaning? For me, being from Hong Kong and connected to Hong Kong, inevitably the recent protests were on my mind. And I felt as an artist who has had a long time interest in politics and making political art, I wanted to address it, but to address those protests in a way that was sensitive and cognizant of my status as someone who is living in the United States. For me, looking at protests structurally rather than in terms of their content seemed interesting and one possible way forward. And by structurally, I mean thinking about protests as gatherings of people and then imagining other types of gatherings, like parades, or like the Olympics, or even like an audience that goes to see the choreography of a ballet. And so that became one entrance into thinking about how work can be political without maybe putting me, the artist, in a position of saying what the audience should think or should feel or guiding um, a kind of ideology. Um, I really kind of think of this project itself as a decoy. It's a colorful piece that can be read as purely celebration. Of course, celebrating Asia Society's 30th anniversary and celebrating um, in this case, Americana, or the United States. But I also wanted it to have other layers. So the stereograms is one way of literally having one pattern 
and seeing something else in it. And a stereogram, if you grew up in the 90s, you would remember them as posters in malls um, that looked like dense patterns. And you would see people, mostly kids, staring at them. They were called magic eye. They were called magic eyes. Everyone was trying to cross their eyes to see this image that would jump out at them. Exactly. So using this image, what, what is the image that we're supposed to see? What is jumping out at us from your stereograms? Well, my stereograms all have ducks. <laughs> Specifically, they are decoy ducks. And even more specifically, they are some of the most famous ducks from John D. Rockefeller III's collection. Um, many of these uh, were sold uh, at um, Christie's, and many of them ended up at Colonial Williamsburg as part of Colonial Williamsburg's uh, collection. So you talked about um, initiating research on the Rockefeller family when we asked you to be part of this show, and you started researching Asia Society's history. Um, their collection is very much well known for their Asian art collection. How did you get to ducks? It's a great question. Um, I did indeed, of course, look at Asia Society's <laughs> collection from the Rockefellers, and it is definitely uh, historic and very important. But my process tends to be intuitive. Um, it's actually not dissimilar to, to painting where you are allowing the project to speak and you're in conversation with it as it goes along. And I actually tried a couple of stereograms initially with very famous works from the Asia Society's own collection and something just didn't feel right. Um, it seemed a little bit too on the nose, I think, for this exhibition. And it lacked humor. Um, and I think that this is uh, that feeling of, of something humor or a curveball, the kind of funny lyrics to John Philip Seuss's military march or this idea of a, a kind of 90s magic eye working its way into a, a high art exhibition. Those components are, are important for me in this project. Um, have you included stereograms in your past work? I have not, but possibly I will include them in future works. <laughs> or, or ducks, perhaps. I mean, it's actually quite, um, it seems so obvious, actually, how well the duck motif, uh, the duck as a decoy, um, as a symbol, um, fits with this exhibition, with your work, and with Hong Kong. Um, as you know, like, over five years ago, the, everyone remembers the big rubber duck in the harbor, um, which had this... Uh, uh, reference to the spectacle and symbolism of contemporary art. Um, I don't think that was necessarily part of your intention in, in this piece. Um, but uh, but it, I think it's actually very prescient and uh, timely to talk about these, um, these symbols that we, um, that we have to talk about more serious and grave issues, but with a sense of humor. Um, and, and lighthearted fun. <laughs> um, Mary Lou Retton is a very large figure, literally, um, in your work. Her, um, these famous images from her winning the gold medal are um, seen over the ravine of Jockey Club Hall. For you, what does that moment of her winning the, the gold medal um, mean in terms of your um, your childhood in, in the U.S. and your research on Americana? 
I remember very clearly uh, watching the 84 Olympics in LA. And I remember very clearly Mary Lou Renton doing her two final perfect 10 vaults to win the women's all around. And for me, it's a childhood memory, which is a, a good one. Um, but of course, in retrospect, looking back at that, I also understand that the Olympics have other nationalistic and political and perhaps more serious, um, more serious uh, meanings to them. Um, the 1984 Olympics in LA, those were the Olympics that the USSR and China boycotted. Uh, and so two powerhouses in the field of gymnastics were not present during those Olympics. Um, so I'm saying allowing the US to then go on to be in, this, in the spotlight. Um, but this kind of uh, celebration and um, nationalistic spotlight is is that the way we're supposed to look at the um, at her presence here in Hong Kong? It's just such a fascinating question because Mary Lou Retton is she is the curveball, but she's also in some ways the curveball that you know all of the other proper nouns, uh, the Balanchine or the um, Redcoats at Colonial Williamsburg, those are not. References, I feel that an audience member could really get behind and, and occupy. I, I felt like there needed to be a proper noun or a person or a figure like Mary Lou Retton, who is real. She's now on Dancing with the Stars. Um, she, is, she became an American icon. Um, people of my age remember her well, and she impacted the field of gymnastics. Mm -hmm. It's, she has dimension to her in a way that hopefully is another kind of entrance into uh, this artwork for an audience member. And even if you don't know who she is, uh, I hopefully uh, an audience member would understand the kind of discipline gymnastics takes um, and then also enjoy things like her exaggerated, her exaggerated poses, um, her outfit, which is a, basically an American flag that's wrapped around her body. So I, hopefully there are also visually interesting aspects. Um, well, I think there's a lot of visually interesting references and icons and imagery, especially when you get really close to the stereograms. There's so many details. You've talked about um, taking images of Fourth of July parades and isolating just the balloons um, and flags and the... the um, the dancers, the, with, uh, yeah, that, that also um, alludes to the, the dancing routines in, in gymnastics. There's just so many wonderful tie-ins um, in all these references. Um, I think that there's just so many ways to, to look at your art, um, both visually but also historically, um, in the context of participating in this exhibition in Hong Kong at this moment, what does the next act mean for you? Well, I think that many Hong Kongers don't know exactly what the next act of the city will be. 
and that many Hong Kongers, myself included, are curious about what Hong Kong will look like. And so in many ways, we are all waiting for the next act. To answer kind of an earlier question, um, I just want to get into this a little bit. But when I was looking at doing the stereograms using the George Balanchine dancers, uh, I saw an interview with the lead dancer who was playing El Capitan, the main character Mm -hmm. in the um, Balanchine Stars and Stripes ballet. And he described his character as not really having much of a storyline or carrying a plot line, but more about an attitude. Um, And he described it as the attitude that characterizes Americans in the eyes of the rest of the world. Mm. Overly confident, very exaggerated in gestures, um, always a wink here, a nod there. And I think the quotation of his that remains in my mind is that you could never overplay this person. And that's the tone I wanted these stereograms to have. Um, Exaggerated, overconfident, winks and nods everywhere. Um, Whether there's substance in that, who knows? It could all just be a decoy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What do you think about the next act? You know, I think of it as an open-ended opportunity. Um, You know, change does not have to be a bad thing. Um, And I think it's just an opportunity to to reflect and, you know, to come together, find common ground, and, you know, create something meaningful and good. And, um, you know, when putting this exhibition together, we spent a long time talking with every every artist, every participant about these words, about how um, just in, you know, we these words of next act or the future um, are, are meant to be hopeful. Um, as you said before, we don't know what's going to happen, um, but you know, we do know we want to do something together. We do know we want to do an exhibition together and we want to celebrate Hong Kong and, um, you know, our viewers and the community here. But um, uh, to me, the next act just means being present and being together going forward. And we'll see what happens next. Well, you have a great role model in John D. Sr., mm. whose next next act after Standard Oil was perhaps more impactful Absolutely. than creating the world's largest and first corporation. Right, right. Um, and I think that you know that goes back to our original intention: is celebrating that legacy um, and that intention and that vision to be. You know, Asia Society is meant to be a neutral platform for discussion and for connecting Asia and the world. So, you know, this comes full circle. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I wish we had more time to talk more about the symbolism that's hidden in all of your work because the history and the thought and the research that you've put into every component of um, of your work is it's just it's fascinating. Um, and I hope the viewers have a chance to really. Um, understand that and learn more about um, about your work because it's not um, it's not a coincidence that the sculpture is sitting on a vaulting table. 
um, there, there's just so much great um, uh, thought um, and, and questions that are raised by your work. So well, let's go back to the title of your work, which is Always Leave the Table a Little Hungry. Is that reference? There's also a turkey in the middle of your Ford Theater. What does a turkey have to do with Lincoln's assassination or John D. Rockefeller III or Mary Lou Renton? For me, the turkey is the paradigmatic American dinner, uh, American gathering. So I wanted that as the, uh, well, it also ties together the ducks and the swans and, and, and the lyrics from the John Philip Sousa. Um, but I wanted, uh, I wanted, I wanted a, um, I wanted an American um, icon. Um, so there's Mary Lou Retton, and then there's also a Thanksgiving turkey in the center. And I thought it fit with the title very well, um, this idea of leaving the table a little bit hungry. To us seems so un-American, even <laughs> unmodern, And yet, um, it is one of the guideposts for a 98-year-old titan of the American mm -hmm. industry who also seeded universities in China, the University of Chicago, medical schools, Asia society. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are, there is value um, to, to thinking about. Um, it's, it's interesting because all of the, the, the gatherings that you talk about, parades, the celebrations, um, seem to allude to this idea of a collective narrative, and yet all of the symbols that you have are um, intentionally or unintentionally kind of undermining that uh, superficial, the facade of what something is supposed to be. Is that the intention of your work and its questioning kind of these um, nationalistic um, celebrations. It is, yeah. <laughs> and and perhaps you you put your finger on it that it's important also to have a Thanksgiving turkey, which is a far different kind of gathering. <laughs> it's 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 of course a national icon for the U.S., but it's also a family gathering, mm -hmm. and it's a different scale. Um, so I I appreciate that reading. Um. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a meal, and a meal is a very universal human way of bringing people together to the table, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stop there. <laughs> Cat, you are. Thank you no, so much. No, this is so fun.